we return to Luke 11. Uh, to kind of a fun, fun little passage here. Uh, looking at Jesus' interaction with uh, a group of people and, of course, um, a supernatural experience here as he deals with a man who uh, has a demon and this man is said to be mute. If you look at the uh, other Gospels, you will see that uh, it also indicates that this man was, uh, was deaf as well. So could not speak and could not uh, hear. And so as you come to this text, remember, uh, Luke is doing something specific. He's bringing about a particular point. And that point, of course, there is uh, that he is trying to bring assurance. He's brought, trying to bring confidence uh, to those who have trusted in Christ. And, and he's using these stories. He's using what um, this particular portion here this morning to highlight, again, Jesus' uh, claims who he has said he is thus far, and also uh, his authority. That there is something crazy happening in the text this morning. Something unusual happens. And, and when something unusual happens, uh, we tend to look to uh, the way that that was done or the, the source of that power or how it has been accomplished. How does that work? We're kind of amazed. You ever see, uh, you know, a uh, magician pull off something and then in that you kind of catch this uh, glimpse in everyone's eye trying to figure out, like, how, how, did, how was that accomplished? What did they do? What, how, how did they pull off that illusion? Because we want to know the source of that power. We want to understand where did that come from? How does it work? Number one, so we can find out, uh, was I fooled? Or we can say, I have confidence in this person. I have confidence in their ability. Uh, this, what, I, what I saw was merely a trick, or what I saw was, was actually real. And if it was real... What, where does that power come from? And, and this is what Jesus does here with this group of people as, and with this particular man. He shows up and he demonstrates his authority. He uh, firms up his claims on who he is through the demonstration of his miracle, uh, but in the process makes several claims. And, and you'll see how he navigates this group of people in, in an extremely wise way uh, as we look at the text. And so Luke does something that he doesn't do frequently in uh, his text. He gives us the long and short of the whole thing in the first verse. If you want to know what happens in this story, you basically look at it. All the action happens in one condensed verse. Verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Like, there it is. He, he doesn't have to narrate all the details about what he was walking up crowd and they were this way and this thing happened. He just says, there's a guy, he's got an issue, it's a supernatural issue, and there's also physical problems associated with it, and Jesus fixes it. And the crowd's like, wow. Like, it's a really condensed, really quick section that you find all of this explained uh, very, very quickly. And there's no specific setting given. We're not told he was at a particular group or a particular seashore or he's not in a particular city. None of that is, is listed for us here by Luke. What we have is the healing of this man who has a demon. And in this account, particularly, Luke does something that he doesn't do in all the other accounts um, when he talks about Jesus casting out demons. In this particular one, he differentiates something for us to know. That this man 
this particular situation, it's not to say that the other ones weren't the same, but this one, he specifically says that this uh, man's physical condition, his uh, inability to, to speak, and, and read the other Gospels, his inability to hear, is specifically attributed to this role of this demonic spirit in this man's life. So his physical condition is connected to a supernatural circumstance, a supernatural condition. That they are one and the same, Jesus is, is, is getting at here. Now, Luke doesn't do that in his other passages. When he speaks about Jesus casting out demons in other situations, he doesn't specifically call it out and say, well, this was because of this. That's not to say that it wasn't. But he certainly gives us more details here than he does in these other situations. And I think that's helpful because it, it broadens our minds to say, sometimes uh, those physical conditions are the result of just the brokenness of this world, right? That, that there's uh, a man in the scriptures that is uh, born blind and, uh, or, or lame, and, and, and uh, in that moment there, he uh, explains to uh, the people that he was kind of in that circumstance. And Jesus says specifically that it wasn't this man's sin that caused this. It wasn't a, a, a situation. I mean, he was born this way so that God might be glorified. He knew, God knew that he would be uh, born into this world of sin with that brokenness, but uh, in that particular way so that he might be, uh, it might be demonstrated who Jesus is. And there's a particular purpose. And so there's some things that are just related to, uh, to being living in a world of sin that God works through, nonetheless. There are some situations uh, that are brought about, uh, brokenness enters your life because you are, you are involved in sin. You do something stupid, you do something that is dishonoring to God, and you end up with further brokenness in your life as the result of that sin. Uh, and then there's the case where uh, maybe everything seems to be good and right, but there's a supernatural element where there's a brokenness that comes as the result of uh, this supernatural oppression. And so it could be any of the, uh, those three things as we look at the various cases throughout the scriptures, but here Luke tells us that this one is connected uh, to this particular demonic activity. And so we find here that when the demon goes out, the man speaks with the exiting of this uh, demon, the man gains back his own voice. And the result there is that the people marvel. The people marvel. Right? So, of course, if you see something like that, and you, you've, been, you've known this guy, you've seen this guy around, he doesn't ever speak, and all of a sudden, Jesus does some crazy thing and like casts out this demon, and all of a sudden, this guy starts speaking, and everyone's like, what in the world? Right? Like, this is crazy. It's something remarkable. But that's all it is for the crowd. It is remarkable in the true sense of that word. It is re worth remarking about. Wow, that was crazy. Because of what Luke wants us to see and what the scriptures want us to understand is that marveling doesn't always equate to faith. Just because you think something is amazing doesn't mean that you are saying, that's amazing in my life and impactful for me. You can be like, that's cool, but I'm just going to say I don't need any of that. You can be uh, observing something, and it might be a good story to tell other people, but for you, you might hold it at a distance. And so the scriptures kind of put it together in this way, where uh, as the people marvel, that term can either be, uh, they can be marveling in a, in a positive way, where they think, wow, like Jesus really is who he says he is, or they can be marveling in a negative way and saying, like, can you believe this guy? He's demonstrating his power and doing these things that, you know, are 
are turning out to be detrimental to the people of Israel, and it's leading people away. And so the people do react. The people do respond to the unusual event, the miraculous event that takes place, but it's not necessarily in belief in Jesus. They can be amazed. They can be amazed at what they see and still not like what they see. Like those two things can live alongside each other. You can be amazed by it, but be like, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't endorse that. That's crazy though. Some of them though, some of them have a little bit of a different perspective. They process it a little bit differently. So they think here, um, okay, this might be this might be something. Verse 15, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So some in the crowd have this kind of skepticism about where this is coming from, what Jesus is doing. How is the healing of this uh, mute man to be explained? How is, uh, are we understanding this? Where does this come from? And so uh, they say, okay, well, maybe this is coming from uh, the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that is uh, to say Satan. Uh, the origin kind of of that title, Beelzebub, is, is rooted in uh, the description of uh, a Canaanite god called Baal, that you'll, you find as you read the Old Testament. So it's kind of a, an elaboration on that. And, uh, you know, we don't want to go down too, too far down the rabbit hole. But nonetheless, we find here that uh, this tells us that um, they're saying that the source of this power is the enemy. It's Satan. Jesus is casting out demons uh, by Satan. He is representing uh, this, uh, this satanic power. Now, this is not a charge that is entirely unusual from these people. Uh, if you recall that um, Jesus makes this point when uh, he says what the, uh, when he speaks regarding what the people were saying about John the Baptist. If you recall a few chapters ago in Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus tells them, uh, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon, right? So Jesus, Jesus is showing up, and he's talking to these, um, to these religious people, and he's like telling them, like, you guys have said that John the Baptist, he's got the power of Satan because he doesn't eat any bread, and he doesn't drink any wine. But then he says, on the flip side, verse 34 of chapter 7, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he's kind of putting both of these things out there, like, look, like, you guys can't be saying that both of these things are wrong. Like, John the Baptist, he doesn't eat or drink, uh, and we eat and drink here, but you're saying John the Baptist has, right? So he kind of puts them in the same position. He, this is something that has been spoken of, of people before, especially John the Baptist. And so, as the similar charge is leveled against John, now it is brought to Jesus. They say, this guy, he is working through the power of Satan. But then there were others in the crowd who wanted to test him. Verse 16. Others wanted to test him, and they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So there are other people who aren't as skeptical. They're like, oh, like this might be a thing. This might be like something that is... Is interesting, but they want more proof. They want Jesus to do something else. 
They want to test Jesus and have him give some sign from heaven, which it's hard to know like what would actually um, like kind of meet their expectations. Like he literally just cast out a demon from a guy and like made him speak when he couldn't speak before. So uh, I'm I'm not sure what exactly they would would really accept. Um, he had already shown these healings. It's also uh, unclear from this test that they're asking for a sign from heaven. What were what they were trying to prove? Like, did did they want him to like further prove that he was like the Messiah? Did they want him to prove that like he had authority? Were they trying to just prove that he's like a prophet? Because those are kind of like different level tests that you might ask for, and they would require different responses. So uh, it's a little bit unclear as to what they were going for. But Luke writes this in such a way knowing that this comes so far into the journey already, so far into his, his letter already. And for Luke, and for the hearers of Luke, those who would be reading it, they would come to this passage, and you and I would come to this passage, knowing that the significance of what Jesus has done is already clear. He's already made a point. He's been making a point this entire time. The healing of this man uh, is a sign that Jesus is indeed the promised Savior. That he is who he has claimed to be. And then what the scriptures promised. If you go all the way back to that same passage in chapter 7 of Luke, you find that in that passage, um, the, the uh, disciples of John are coming to, to Jesus. And they're like, what's going on, Jesus? Like, uh, like are you this guy or not? Are you the, the, the promised one? And he tells the messengers from John... Yeah, in chapter 7, verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So he doesn't, he doesn't say, go tell John, yes, <laughs> I am the promised one. He doesn't say that. He says, go tell John what you have seen, what you have heard, your experience looking at my works, what I have uh, said that I would do, what was promised of uh, the coming Savior. You go tell him what you've witnessed. Don't just go tell him yes. Go tell him what you have testified of with your own eyes. Promise. These promises are, are scattered all throughout the Old Testament, but we will uh, stop at one briefly in Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, verse 5, regarding the, the coming of this promised deliverer, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So you have like a collection of things there that would be connected to the coming of this promised Savior, that, that things would begin to be unbroken, that there would be a restoration of some of these things. And, and what he tells John there is that the, the lame walk, I mean, he doesn't say that this lame man leaps like a deer, but I think we kind of get the idea there, like lame people don't walk. Uh, and if they were leaping like a deer, it's saying that there's going to be this abundance, that, you know, that this is going to come forth and that they will regain that opportunity. Uh, here we find in Isaiah chapter 35 that specifically the mute sing for joy. And here is this man 
who is mute, now having the opportunity to speak, having the opportunity to sing for joy. And so, there's this, there's, uh, this request from this group of people, testing them. They want to seek a sign from heaven. Now, if you're not sure about who Jesus is, is he really going to just be like, no, I'm not going to like really show you that I really am the Son of God? Absolutely not. Jesus wants people to know him. He wants people to understand who he is. He wants people to be in a relationship with him. So when these people are seeking a sign, what are they actually getting at here? I mean, they saw plenty, plenty of miracles, plenty of things that Jesus has done. Why are they asking? Why are they asking? Well, one of the main reasons why people ask these sorts of things is because they want another, uh, they want another excuse to delay. Show me again. Show me how to do it another way. They're looking to find an angle to not have to come to terms with what it actually means if Jesus is the king. Let me put it off a different way. Let me look at a different direction. But if you are truly coming in, in your heart of hearts and asking God to show you so that you might come and worship him, he will show up 100% of the time and make it clear. Whether he responds is not on the basis of his heart, but on your heart. Do you actually want to know, or are you looking for an excuse? Are you looking for a way to delay things? Are you looking for something to put it off further? He knows that part. And so if you have those difficulties, if you have problems, if you're coming to the passages in the Bible and you're like, I don't really understand this, it doesn't really make any sense, and I don't understand why God would be this way or act this way, and, and you're looking to actually have an answer, he's going to meet you. But if you're looking to find something to confirm your, your biases already or to confirm what you want in your heart already, you're not going to get the answer that you want. You're not going to get that. He's not going to be uh, entertained. Um, he's not going to be your entertainment. He's there to, to teach the honest heart, the pure heart that's actually asking. And here, this crowd has enough evidence to decide. Jesus is not going to be like, okay, well, like, let me like make the sun stand still for you guys. Uh, I already like cast out this demon. Let me make like the sun stand still. I mean, at a certain point, uh, the scriptures tell us that even if somebody was raised from the dead, from the dead, you like wouldn't believe, right? So uh, that actually ends up happening, and people still don't believe. So it's not like there's any sort of lack of signs given. But in this particular instance, they have enough. They have enough to make a decision. They know what they need to know. And Jesus knows that. So he launches into a question that his miracle raised. A question that has not been asked, but a question that exists. Was he from God? Look at verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house, uh, divided household falls. So here we see that Jesus knows the thoughts of his audience. They haven't asked a question, but they're saying, "Give us another sign! Give us another sign! We want a sign from heaven." So Jesus doesn't deal with that. 
He doesn't say, okay, well, here's like your thing that you want me to like show you. But instead, he responds to the deeper question in their hearts. Who is this guy? He knows that they're asking this question. Is this guy, where does his power come from? How does this work? And in doing so, in responding in this particular way, uh, he's, he's stirring things up. This has happened several times throughout his ministry, where like he'll be with a group of people, and they'll be thinking something about them, and he'll start speaking into that. He'll be like, knowing, it'll say, like, knowing the thoughts of their hearts, he responded kind of like in this way, and he, 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 he elaborates further, and he speaks to the situation. But here, I love this, because this particular, uh, this particular instance, it kind of functions as a marker for the reader, for us, so that way we can understand that Jesus really knows what's going on in the situation. We can see that he is who he says he is. But at the same time, it operates as a response to their request. They're seeking this sign from heaven, and what other sign could you have than this guy like responding to a question that you have not asked? Knowing the thoughts of their hearts, he's like, I'll get straight to it because you're not going to drag it out here. He just goes straight in and says, here, here it is, guys. I, I know what you're talking about in your hearts. I know what you guys are, are asking. Here's the answer to your question. So he doesn't completely ignore them. He says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to ask you a better question that will help you firm up what you actually think about me. And he can do this while not being an entertain, uh, entertainer to everybody else maintaining who he is and his, his status. He can maintain his own perspective of what, how he wants to present himself. And so he comes out and he says this, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. So he appeals to kind of this um, kind of common illustration at, at this time about a house being divided. This would also be uh, rooted in Israel's history because for a time, uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided into sections. It was divided into different kingdoms. And when that happened, every like they had a different king for like southern Israel and northern Israel, and it just ended up being like a huge mess and all sorts of crazy bad stuff happened. And they went far from God during this period uh, because they weren't united. They weren't united under recognizing the rule of God as their king. And so when this happens, um, and he brings up something being divided, it reminds them, like, oh yeah, like there can't be two Israels. We can't be having like, these two different groups of people trying to do one thing. It, it, it's fresh. There's something that feels a little bit uh, uncomfortable about hearing this. And so he says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Then he goes on for it, and he says, and if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So, he goes in and he basically gets to, you know, the, the illustration this way, and he says, a kingdom divided is, is going to fall, and you're trying to have different factions of the kingdom, it's going to fall. And then he says, I just cast out a demon. Satan's out to destroy mankind. He's about to, he's, he's out to, to bring disease and death upon all of mankind. He's, he's out to hurt everybody. So when I show up and I cast out a demon, 
and disease and death and a guy who is being oppressed and cannot speak, uh, when disease and death are, are reversed, then that can't be the work of Satan because Satan's then working against himself if I'm from Satan. So do you think that Satan's empowering me to cast out his own forces? That doesn't make sense because then it would be uh, me weakening his kingdom. And so that division would lead to the destruction of his kingdom. So he kind of like reasons this whole thing out for them. Like, you guys, like this doesn't even make sense what you're saying. Like, I'm making things better. Like, this guy can speak now. Uh, I didn't show up and like cast out demons, but I put in like a stronger demon that like made this guy's like life way worse. Like, he didn't get like paralyzed now as a result of my work. Like, it didn't get worse. It got better. Things were becoming unbroken. They're not becoming more critical. And then he goes on further, and he, he, he moves from this kind of logical approach to, um, for them to kind of something that's a little bit more personal. Right? He kind of gives them that first level framework and says, think about it. Then he says, your thing doesn't make sense on a second point. If you wanted to stay consistent with your point, verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So he says to them, if, if what I do is by Satan's power, then what does that do? What does that say about like, about like the people of Israel when they encounter uh, demons and, and they cast them out? Like, are they also working by, by Satan's power? If they, uh, what you say about me, and we're having the same practice and the same result, then it has to be consistent of them as well. So if Jesus cast out demons uh, by Satan, then so do others uh, who cast out demons. And they don't want to say that their own uh, people are casting out demons and working for Satan. So he kind of puts them in the place where they're having to recognize that if they cast out demons by God's power, then Jesus must also be casting them out with God's power. So this is how he gets to verse 20. But if, if it is by the finger of God that, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he kind of put, he breaks it down, logical, personal, and then he pivots and says, but here's the ultimate suggestion. Here's the way that you ought to think about it. Here's what the miracles really show. Here's what this is meant to display. That the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. And he calls out that God is the source of power for casting out demons. If it is by the finger of God, he says. And this is kind of a throwback to uh, many places in the Old Testament. Uh, but... I'll highlight for you one that kind of demonstrates a similar miracle-working situation. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 8, verse 19, you find kind of this situation where anytime Moses would show up and do this miracle by the power of God, the magicians of Pharaoh would try to conjure some sort of way, and usually that would be through a demonic work. Like there would be a kind of a demon behind the scenes helping them produce this this matching miracle, right? So they would say, okay, well, the... You know, the water turned to blood. Now I want to show that now the magicians of, of Pharaoh would make their water turn to blood. And then there would kind of be these different, uh, this battle of a sense of the gods. But then as you come into to verse uh, chapter 8, 
chapter 8, verse 19, you find there that, that they're trying to reproduce like these gnats, basically like the plague of gnats that came, and then the, the magicians are trying to, to bring forth their own like plague of gnats, which like doubling it doesn't seem like a good idea. So um, it's kind of like jokes on you if you succeed anyways. Um, but in the process, they're trying to do this, and they are unable. And they say uh, to Pharaoh, Exodus 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. They say it themselves. Like, this is the finger of God of Israel. It is his power. It is his work. It is his miracles. They could not do it, and they attribute the fact that Moses could do it to God's work. The power comes from God. It's not Moses. And then we find that even though this is displayed, it is the finger of God, we're told in Exodus 8.19, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. He saw it, he saw something remarkable, he saw something miraculous, I'm sure he was amazed, and he was like, no. He hardened his heart, he didn't want to receive it. His magicians see it, and they say, yeah, this isn't us, like we can't do this. It, only the finger of God is able to accomplish this. And what Jesus does here is he, he draws this similar analogy and he tells them, he tells this, this group of people, the finger of God. It's the finger of God that casts out demons by his work, by his power. He is the source. And if that is the case, then, he says, then, then you can know that things are different. The kingdom of God has come upon you. So he brings out this language that he's been saying since the beginning, that the point of Jesus' coming is that the kingdom of God is here. The coming kingdom of Jesus' rule and reign, it is breaking into the earth and making all of the sad things come untrue and all of the things that are, uh, are, are broken being made new. He's in the process of bringing this about. And when he says this uh, here, he's giving them this understanding that things are about to be different. And they are different. The kingdom of God has come upon you. That it is here. Time to, to think differently, to look at things from a different angle, to recognize that the king has arrived. Now, for those who were present at this time, they're seeing the glimpses of this through the restoration of this man. They catch a glimpse of it. And they don't have the fullness of it, right? It probably was frustrating because it didn't look like what they expected. They had expectations of the establishing of, of uh, a, a new civilization, that the oppressors of Israel would be gone and completely defeated and wiped off the face of the earth, and uh, everything would be uh, restored in the way that they expected. But here, Jesus comes and he brings in, in this phase, uh, what, you know, there's a, a kind of a tension that exists in this time and now, uh, of this kingdom that exists already and has not yet been fully received. Or some might think of it as the invisible kingdom, and yet we are, are, have not yet received the visible kingdom. The, 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 uh, his, his spirit is present with us. His spirit is poured out upon the earth uh, and given to his people, but we have not yet seen uh, the physical presence of our king yet. But we find the results of his presence 
abiding with his people, we find the result of his presence in the world, transforming lives, calling people from darkness into light, making things new and restoring brokenness. It's already begun. It's not yet arrived in its fullness, but it is on the way. Now Jesus finishes with uh, this little illustration. He brings an illustration to uh, the effectiveness of this kingdom, the effectiveness of his work, and what he's actually trying to accomplish uh, in verse 21. He says now, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus illustrates his point here. He brings it out. He has this battle taking place. Uh, and it's kind of set between uh, this picture of, of Satan in kind of like this massive fortress, palace sort of situation that he's guarding all of his, his goods, which is, um, you know, it's a little, a little bit awkward that Jesus seems like he's giving so much like power and put-ups to Satan. Like, oh yeah, he's got like all this armor, it's like crazy. He's kind of, he's, he's putting forth an illustration here. But he says, there's one stronger than he who attacks him and overcomes him. And he takes his armor away in which he trusted. Satan trusts in his power. And Jesus says, I'm more powerful than Satan. Like this is, he's nothing. He's nothing. And when I come in, I plunder that fortress. I plunder it. And I take all his spoils. And they become mine. Defeat comes when the stronger one uh, arrives and attacks. When Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'm going to take him down. I'm going to have victory. And I love that the victory that's, that's displayed for us is connected to the removal of that armor that protects him, that he trusted in. The taking away of Satan's armor. And to the victor go the spoils. Again, rooted in Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the minion, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a result of his work, of his victory, of his conquering of Satan and death at the cross that he receives the spoils of that battle. That we get to be a part of his family. His work means that Satan is no longer in control, no longer has the power and sway over us, that victory belongs to Jesus, that he has the ability to, to cast out these demons by the finger of God, and that he has the ability to give freely, distribute his spirit to his children. Now he finishes with this phrase, after, after making this point saying, here's who I am, and here's your question, and here's who you thought I was. He finishes with this point, verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's two ways that you can go about this. You can be not with him and scatter, or you can be uh, with him and you can gather. You can be with the king, with him, to be present and to gather with him, or if you want to be against him, your option is to uh, to scatter, to go out far. 
Because to consciously not join with him, to not make a, a, a point to say, I'm going to choose you, is, is to make a choice against him. There's, he doesn't really leave out for us a neutral ground. We can't be like, uh, I don't really want to be like for Jesus. I don't really want to be like against Jesus. I just kind of want to be like, a, like I'm like cool with people being for and against Jesus. He doesn't leave us that option. He just gives us the option to be like, do you think I'm awesome and like the king? Or do you think I'm not the king? It's only one. If you don't think that he's the king, then you just you don't think, you know, you're not a part of, of his kingdom. The one who does not gather with Jesus, who doesn't participate in his, his mission, that person then ends up being the cause of division. So you circle back around. Right, there's unity, there's one king, one kingdom. Remember he says, a house divided cannot stand. A kingdom divided will fall. And so he's ending, he's, he starts with that, and he ends with it. Choose. You've got to make a decision about will you follow the king. If you don't want to do that, then you're going to be a source of division. You're going to be someone that causes... Uh, causes a split in that kingdom. And so you can follow Jesus, you can join with him, you can bring in others into the kingdom, or you can stand against him and influence people not to come in, not to join with him. But the reality is, is that the king will return. Right? We've got the invisible kingdom with us, but we look to that day where his kingdom will be made visible by his physical presence on earth. And it's at that time where it will fit kind of that Jewish hope and expectation that they thought would happen. The traditional Israelite hope we will see Jesus' rule and reign present in all the brokenness, all of the injustice. All of creation will be made new. And we will flourish under the kindness of that king. And so there's an invitation for us today to again make that choice. Just as uh, the hearers there had to make a choice, we have to make a choice. Just like we have to make a choice every morning when we get up. Just like we have to make a choice every single moment that we want to walk with the king, that we want to follow him. Sometimes when we come to these sorts of passages, like we kind of make them uh, a little bit more like momentous. Like this is the day where I have to decide. It's like reality, you have to decide tomorrow too. And like the next day after that. It's like this, this is like a day where you have to decide. But you're gonna have to decide again tomorrow and the next day. Not on like your best day or on your worst day. You're going to have to decide all of those days. You don't get a break from it. It's a continual choosing, a continual submitting to the king. To live within his kingdom, to live under his grace, his kindness, his generosity, and his safety and security that he provides. And so it's, it's within that that we rejoice. That he is the stronger, the stronger man. He overcomes the enemy. He overcomes Satan. He overcomes sin. 
and has overcome death. And we trust not in our own armor, but in him who has rescued us from our sin and who has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for that kindness that you've shown us. We're grateful that we can trust in you and that you welcome us in. That you've given us the status of your children. That we are your heirs. We're thankful that you've cleansed us and washed us and made us new. We're thankful that your love for us is extravagant, that it overflows and never ends, that it covers us as you faithfully went to the cross on our behalf, as you gave your life for us. We could never know such love apart from your work. And so we want to be found in it. We want to rest in it, knowing how deeply you care for us. And so Lord, call us to respond now.